Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thanks, Darlene. Welcome to a special edition of Coaching Chronicles on the Mike Wise Show. Some of our favorite guests have been coaches and some of our best player memories have involved interactions with their coaches. Hopefully you'll enjoy some of the stories and perspective of these great leaders. Jeff Van Gundy of ESPN coached 11 seasons in the NBA, taking over as Knicks boss in 1996. I was there at the start and was one of the first reporters to speak with Jeff on the day he took over. People forget uh, that some, some of you young listeners forget that Jeff Van Gundy uh, was Pat Riley's assistant in New York. When Don Nelson was fired from the Knicks, Jeff took over in 1995. Um, I I think it was Frank Isola, me, and I don't know who else, maybe. We we knocked on your... Thomas Hill, that's right. Thomas Hill at the New York Post. And we walked into your uh, hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia, and all of a sudden, you let us in and said, yeah, come on in. This isn't how I thought I would ever get a head job, but this is how I did. And it more and, and that conversation morphed into, I don't know, one of, one of my favorite interviews in, in the history of my career because, you know, was, I guess like all of us, we, we sort of, um, I think why, especially why Frank and I bonded with you is because we saw a guy that in layman's terms, went from the mailroom, a graduate assistant job with Rick Pitino in Providence um, to, you know, leaving Rochester High School and becoming a a college assistant for almost no money to a head coach in the NBA. It was the great mailroom rides, you know, to CEO almost. And and so, and I remember you getting emotional, not because of you getting the job so much, but because of you knew, you knew the sacrifice that your father uh, Bill went through in every small town from Visalia to G- Genesee to wherever he coached. Uh, he never had the opportunity to coach at that level, but you knew he was just as good a coach as you or better. Well, no question. I think uh, there's a certain order for players to go up the ranks, uh, you know, where, you know, the best high school players become the best college players become the best pro players. You know, I mean, that's how it works in coaching. It's totally different. Um, A lot of it is there's so many guys that are qualified and so, so many of these jobs or the best jobs, it doesn't matter at what level, it's just good fortune. It's not that you're a better coach or a more qualified coach. It's just right place, right time, 
knowing the right people. And so for myself, uh, I absolutely understood, you know, that this was not me getting, becoming the Knicks coach that they could have picked Don Chaney to become the Knicks coach. He was a former NBA coach of the year. He was on the same staff. Uh, he knew coach Nelson forever, uh, cause they played together back with the great Celtic team. So, you know, I was just fortunate that Dave and uh, Ernie saw in me something uh, that I probably didn't even see in myself and gave me that opportunity. Um, I was just happy being an NBA assistant. I, I was more mm-hmm. than content. I had a great job. And uh, when given that opportunity, I think I had confidence that I could do the job, but also humility enough to know that there were guys that were passed over that were much more accomplished coaches at that time than I was. When Isaiah Thomas was winning back-to-back championships as a player in Detroit, he was a coach on the floor. But he also coached four NBA seasons, making the playoffs three times. He played for Hall of Fame coaches Chuck Daly with the Pistons and Bob Knight at Indiana University. And while he respects today's coaches, he longs for the days when there was more variety in how teams played the game. And there was there was imagination and creativity, and there were there were different styles, there were different offenses. Now you watch an NBA game, and literally, we got 30 teams in the NBA, and literally they all play the exact mm. same way. Um, Penetrate and kick. Court. Yeah. Yeah, the, the half-court offense is, is, is all the same. It's really just one play, uh, high screen and roll, and, and that's it. <laughs> um, but, you know, back, back when we played, you know, you, you, had, you had different variations of offense, and the coaches were, were extremely imaginative. And now you may look at one coach and you may say, I don't, I don't like his philosophy or style. But you never looked at a coach and said, this guy didn't know what he was doing because he was so ingrained in his philosophy. He was so ingrained in his style that he knew it, you know, in and out. Now, it may have not fit the players that he was coaching. And the players may have some conflict with the coach's philosophy or style. But you never looked at an NBA coach and said, man, this guy don't know what the hell he's doing. Mm. Because they all understood their philosophy and their styles. You think the coach is overrated in today's game because of the copycat nature? I I, I think coaching in today's game, there's there's just not enough creativity and imagination in it, and it's it truly yeah. is you know one size fits all. You know Pop Popovich, um, you know he's he's adapted, he's changed. Uh, and he plays, you know, different ways, different style. Popovich is kind of like um, uh, what uh, the uh, the Patriots coach. Um, Belichick. I'm blanking on his name right now. Belichick. Yeah. So Popovich and Belichick, you know, they're they're about the same way in terms of their coaching styles, their coaching knowledge, because each of them can can look at a team and look at a game plan and say, okay, we're going to change the way we play. And for this specific series or for this specific game, we're going to play this way. And, you know, next week he may be playing a totally different style and doing a totally different thing as like a Belichick can. But they have the ability to teach it. 
you know, back then coaches, you had to have, you had to have secondary degrees and coaches prided themselves on being teachers of the game. Look at Dr. Jack Ramsey. Yeah. You had to teach the game and you, and not only did you have to teach the game, you had to teach life skills. Uh, So that, that component of coaching, that component of, of, of building a, a player and a team, all that is gone. All that is lost. Another thing that has been lost is the bond between a player and an organization. Until Kawhi Leonard locked horns with the San Antonio management and forced the team to trade him, the Spurs were the gold standard when it came to long-term relationships between team and star player. P.J. Carlissimo was an assistant for Greg Popovich and explains what the culture was like and how it affected the way Pop and general manager R.C. Buford built their dynasty. It was a different time. It was a different year. I, I'll be honest with you, coaches still had to deal with it. You still had guys being traded or jumping around. You, you didn't have usually the best players. You had guys like Timmy stay with the team. Timmy and Manu stayed with the team the entire time. David Robinson um, stayed with the team the entire time. But coaches, I think, are used to guys being traded, guys – you know, elected when they're free agents to go somewhere else. Not to the extent that it's happening now. I'll tell you what's different for now, Mike, that that I I don't envy. Our GMs are front office people. Uh, Not that the job was ever easier, but, I mean, how you maneuver now with the salary cap, with agents, with free agency, and with guys just saying, I don't want to be here, trade me, you know, get me out of here. I mean, it's just, uh, it's incredible. Uh, that, that to me is what's different now. Like it, to me, it's a bigger challenge for a front office, for a GM or a VP, whatever their title is, um, to manage and to and to keep things going in the right direction. Now, um, coaches, I, I hate to say, it, coaches are just used to. Hey, t- you know, a couple weeks before training camp starts, tell me what my roster is. Let's go. Pop has a great expression. What he he always referred to as corporate knowledge and kind of uh, alludes to what you were talking about, the fact that we were able to keep our roster relatively intact. And that really is because David and Timmy, you you know, I mean, they had David Robinson and they had Tim Duncan and there was a slew of other guys around them. A lot of them great players. I mean, going back to Avery Johnson and certainly, you know, Mono Ginobili and and, uh, Tony Parker for most of uh, TD's run. Uh, from you know from o three on the championships in o three o five and o seven and then what the one they beat Milwaukee or Miami I think was fourteen but um pop always felt that I remember my first year there when I went there as an assistant after I'd been fired at Golden State and I was out for two years working uh for n b c and I went there as an assistant um Hank Egan retired, and we're getting ready to start uh training camp, and we didn't have like a lot of meetings or anything, and I'm going to uh Two of the assistants with me, you're going to laugh. The three assistants with me were Mike Budenholzer, obviously wow. coaching the Bucks. Um, Mike uh, Mike Brown, who's assistant to Steve Kerr in uh, in Golden State, and Brett Brown, who's coaching the Sixers. And like they had all been there, some of them for a bunch of years. At at least Brett, one, you know, one more year before me, and I'm going, hey guys, when are we going to meet? When are we going to talk about what we're doing? And they said, you know, don't worry, we'll, you know, we'll get to it. And, like, the first practice, like, we went out, and I'm like, I got no clue what we're going to do or, like, you know, what the drills are. And Pop would just go, you know, drill A. I mean, would, and boom, players would just go get in line, do the drill. They all knew it because there wow. was only, like, one or two new guys. And that was literally the corporate knowledge that he always talked about. I mean, the bulk of the team was back from year to year 
and the other guys would come in and they just fit in and um it, it was there was, it was a, a machine a culture and there was a mentality and they made mistakes sometimes they'd get a guy and it really wasn't their type of guy and he'd be gone in another year they wouldn't embarrass him but they, he'd just move on but the yeah. guys were the, the expression they we we'd talk so much we'd be sitting in the um, theater um, like where we looked at film was also where we met, and we'd be with R.C. Buford, the GM, or Sam Presti was the assistant, and Rob Hennigan, I mean, Danny Ferry. I mean, a great – Danny first was a player, but then when they were player personnel people. And one of the things they would always say, we'd talk about, you know, can he shoot, is he quick, can he defend, da-da-da. But then at the end they'd always say, is he a spur? Can, can he be a spur? Wow. You know, can he come here and is he going to share the ball? Is he not going to have an attitude whether he plays or how many minutes he gets? And is he going to play defense? And will he accept coaching if Pop decides to get on him someday? And, and Pop gets a bad rap because people every once in a while see him going. He calls it being Serbian when he goes nuts <laughs> and gets on a guy. And they'll say, but that's not, that's not normal, Pop. That's occasional. But, again, you better be ready for it when you're there, and you better accept it. And that, that's all part of being a spur. And that's what they did better than anybody. And they went and studied the Patriots. Patriots came and studied them because they both knew that, you know, they were two of, if not the two elite franchises in terms of, not just in terms of the product on the field or on the court, but just the way they ran the whole thing. And Pop and R.C. Buford, um, as great a coach as Pop is and as great as the, and he always deflects it. He always goes, well, the reason we won was David and Timmy. And and to an extent, he's right. It, It certainly started with them. But they just did such a good job, those two identifying players who could play the way they wanted them to play and, and would buy into that team culture. And, and that's why they were able to sustain it for so long. I mean, whatever, the numbers were absurd, like 20 straight 50-win yeah. seasons, 20 straight playoffs, whatever whatever those numbers were. That wasn't just a player or two because there was a lot of different rosters there. But yeah. for the most part, those rosters fit together really well, and that was R.C. Buford and Pop. Mike Brown was also an assistant in San Antonio before becoming a head coach in Cleveland and Los Angeles. Mike is now the top assistant to Steve Kerr at Golden State. He is one of many coaches and executives who learned from the man who has won five NBA titles over the past 20 years. Pop is like the godfather. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, there's, there's somebody, and I think there's probably somebody in every single organization out there that has come through San Antonio at some point uh, in time in their their careers. Uh, Pop just he does a phenomenal job. Uh, Pop and RC they do a phenomenal job of of uh, you know trying to find uh, the right people to come work for their organization. And then you know you learn a lot, you grow a lot while while being there, and they they help you get to a point to where you know you're able to go break off on your own and do your own thing. And uh, not only, not you know, not only as a as an assistant coach or assistant GM or a front office guy, you, you know, uh, coming through there. For instance, Sam Presti, that's where he got his start. Uh, he's the GM president of Oklahoma City. But mm-hmm. not only as a you know as a coach or a front office guy, <laughs> but also uh, as a player. And, you know, two guys. If that's the same team that I'm thinking of, you know, you got two guys on that team in Danny Ferry and and Steve Kerr who uh, obviously have yep. had a lot of success as GMs and, and uh, coaches. Yeah, and, they were, play- uh, they were both know, players on that team. Correct. So, 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 you know, you go down the line, you see different guys, whether it be uh, as a player or uh, as an assistant coach or a front office guy come through that organization. 
uh, a lot of them have, have, have uh, had success there and, and, and broken off from there and, and going on to do some special things in the, in the league. Yeah. Uh, Mike Brown, I remember that a friend of mine told me, um, he said, he said, when you got the job with the Lakers and then, and you got hired by the Cavaliers again, and he, he was, I guess he was talking about Lenny Wilkins as well and some other, because, because, and this person happens to be an African-American journalist. He said, you know, the NBA has now shown progress because you now have the black retread coach. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, okay, wait a minute. That's a little harsh for Mike Brown. He's had a lot of success, but I mean, there is something to be said for um, not a good old boy network, but, but you, you know, because you were fired from one job. It didn't paralyze your coaching career like it's done for so many um, uh, African American coaches in football and baseball and other sports. Yeah, you know the, the NBA is pro- probably uh, one one of the organizations out there, and you could uh, even go outside of uh, outside of sports and just used in, in in business. And you could include in business too that that uh, is has uh, forward thinking and. You know they, they usually lead the pack in a lot of different uh, areas that uh, uh, of social you know injustices in terms of uh, making sure that uh, they do things the right way and uh, they don't base a lot of things on you know color or gender or anything like that. You can see it uh, now in in terms of all uh, the hirings that have, have occurred uh, for for females. You know, as females are starting to move to the bench uh, in our business and Incredible. prominent roles, prominent roles in the front office, and and so you know you don't take that that stuff lightly. And uh, as a guy that has had an opportunity to uh, to be a head coach uh, on more than one occasion, you know you know it's an honor. Uh, you know it, it, it is a privilege. And and again, you can throw all those things in there: lucky, blessed, fortunate, so on and so forth. But you know, you you know that uh, uh, there are a lot of people that look up to you uh, because of the different opportunities that you have had uh, in this business. Even Greg Popovich was new to the coaching ranks at one time, starting his NBA career as an assistant to Larry Brown in 1988. Brown told Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov on the Catch and Shoot podcast that he didn't have a coaching tree. He had a forest. Coach Brown was notoriously tough on his point guards, and Mr. Big Shot Chauncey Billups who won the 2004 Finals MVP on Brown's only title team, was no exception. Larry Brown's the best coach I've ever played for. Yeah. Uh, Larry, he's also the coach that I lost enough, uh, more sleep with. I mean, he's he drove Even me more than George Carl? George Carl? I didn't crazy. lose any sleep. You're, you're... I, I didn't lose any sleep with George. George was, George was easy. Okay. George was easy. I didn't lose a lot of sleep with uh, with George. Yeah. Uh, but Larry Brown, I lost a lot of sleep playing for him. He's the craziest. He's the craziest, but the best coach I ever played for. Um, he's like he's the teacher you remember. Like, oh God, he was a son of a bitch, but he made me uh, what I could be. Uh, he was crazy, man. But he made me so. Like, much like, well, like, give me an example. Well, he's just a guy that he, he's he's. And no matter what you did, you couldn't please him. Okay. Uh, Every player wants to please the coach and wants to, you know, be right with the coach. No matter how well I played, 
how well I ran the team that night, how many games we won. Like, you just couldn't please him. Yeah. And, uh, like, that was my fourth game with him. Um, we were on the, we were starting a West, West Coast trip playing the Clippers, and I had a, what I thought was an unbelievable game. I had, like, 29 points. I had 10, 10 assists, nine rebounds, two turnovers. And we won at the end of a game in L.A. And I was uh, – we were we were kind of celebrating walking through the tunnel. And Larry was coming behind us, and he was walking with his head down, shaking his head. And uh, – Oh, man. I don't know why I did, but I went back there. I was like, Coach, what's up? You all right? What's going on? And he looked at me in disgust. And he said, son – you just have no idea how to play that position for me. Oh, no. I said, look, coach, look, look, man, I don't know what in the world you're talking about, but tonight you're not about to steal my shine, bro. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. <laughs> and then I went I went on into the locker room. But, and, and, you know, it was me and him was, I mean, we, we that first probably 50, 30, not probably 50 games, man, it was like a, it was it was man it was back and forth like crazy, and then once I figured out we we met a lot talked a lot both were willing you know to really kind of change work it out. Once I figured out that you couldn't please him that, that he was just gonna be who's gonna be I just I quit worrying about it and then our our relationship took off like a rocket it was awesome so. Yeah, but he made me better man he made me better I, I love Larry I jump off bridge for Larry Brown man. When Larry Brown was a guest on the Catch and Shoot podcast, he addressed those early struggles with Chauncey, but showed a side of himself that made players eventually love him. At first, it was tough um, because, you know, I was I was asking certain players to change roles. I mean, I was really difficult with Chauncey, um, and it was it was kind of a challenge. Uh, but after about two months, uh, that team was like family to me. Uh, almost everywhere I've been, I've had a close relationship with the players. Um, now I don't think I always handle every player the right way. And there's some I'd, I'd like to take back, but I've always felt, um, a close relationship, not only with with the players, but with my staff, and my staff always had unbelievable relationships with players. Larry Brown never coached Hall of Famer Chris Mullen, although Mully told us a story about how his son was playing pickup on a playground on Long Island when Coach Brown randomly pulled over and started teaching the dribble handoff and back cuts to a bunch of kids in the park. Mully didn't play for Brown, but he did play for Larry Bird. And when Mully took over the head coaching job at St. John's, he borrowed from Larry Legend's philosophy. But playing for Larry was awesome. Larry was just as a player, you know, no bullshit, straight up, tell you like it is. Um, he didn't do anything he didn't like to do, which I love. You know, he didn't he didn't like to, you know, as a player, watch, you know, just watch film for, for the sake of watching it. You know I mean? He would scale it down to stuff he felt we needed. Practice was all business. He was really into preparing and then going out there and playing and bringing bring your A game. You know, not a lot of room to be on time. Be prepared, play hard, play together, boom. And, and it sounds simple, but that's what he did. And he, 
and yeah. he didn't make much more of it than that. And just like a player, he kept it simple. And then he he did his job, and he did it each and every day. Um, so I actually took a lot from playing for him when I coached. My four years coach, I took a lot from him on just keep it simple. Yes. Come to work and, and, and focus on practice. And in the game, man, let it fly. That's why you practice, is to go out there and perform. And, um, and as much as he had uh, – as much as he – he wanted to win the title when they went against the Lakers in 2000. I I still feel like, man, it just broke his heart when you guys lost game seven against the Bulls. Cause, cause I thought of all the times that somebody was going to have Michael's number, it was going to be that season. I mean, that was the year that the Knicks had beaten the Bulls twice in the regular season, including like last day of the regular season. Like I remember Frank Isola and I were sitting courtside and John Starks just gets this ball that rolls out to him. He hits this three at the United Center. And it's like, holy, this is the last day of the regular season. They just beat him. Like if they had not gotten thrown out, uh, those guys got not thrown out for leaving the bench against Miami, I thought they would have given the Bulls all they could handle. You guys gave the Bulls all you can handle that year. Yeah, and it's funny. Barry uh, hasn't been so many playoff battles as a player. Um, and you talk about just keeping things so simple. Larry was into each and every regular season game because he knew and then he talked to us. Even I remember the first week of the season, I thought he was crazy. Like, man, he dropped the game, I think, somewhere, you know, first mm-hmm. in November. And he was pissed. His focus was having home court. Oh. Having that game. Yep. And, and you know, so he he was very meticulous on that. And so that game, game seven, was in Chicago. So in the back yes. of his mind, if, you know, one or two games in the regular season, we have that game um, at that point in time, it was probably Market Square Arena before Conseco and whatever it's called now. But Yeah, yeah. and Market so, Square so, Arena so, was on fire. I mean, that 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 was beyond loud. Yeah, so so just, just the old school, like, like every game does count because that game seven could have been our home game. But, yeah. This show began with Jeff Van Gundy, and it's going to end the same way. Coaches are always on the hot seat, especially in New York. But while Knicks fans normally have little sympathy for struggling coaches, they do know when a good man is getting a raw deal. And Jeff recalled a very special day at Madison Square Garden when he was serenaded by almost 20,000 fans whose collective love washed over him like a tsunami. All the things that happened during the 1999 season have already happened. Uh, Ernie Grunfeld is fired. The team is in eighth place, barely holding on to the last playoff spot. And the trades for Marcus Camby and Latrell Sprewell have been mocked. And everybody's wondering why they gave the heart and soul away and John Starks and Charles Oakley. And all the infighting organizationally came down to uh, you remaining as the coach. Dave Checkett's choosing essentially you over Oni Grunfeld, which was never an open fight, but it because because ownership and everybody else let thing let people get away with uh infighting at the garden and that's and it was a little bit of a shark tank that's what it became i i find out that phil jackson had met with the knicks um and you're the coach still and and on and that day's front page the story the story reads that you know phil jackson has met with dave check it's it's game four of the atlanta hawks series you have a chance to sweep the hawks and go into the eastern conference finals um, do you remember this day? Well, I think so many, when you coach for so long in one place, and then also, Mike, when you, uh, you know, it's been such a long period of time since then, uh, you can forget a lot of things about a lot of specific games, but there are some things that remained etched in your mind. 
and the response by the fans towards me on that day was uh, something I'll never forget. And I think it shows you a myth about New York that they only respond to stars. Um, certainly, I was no you know star or celebrity. And it's similarly, some of the most beloved players in Nick history for the fan base uh, weren't stars uh, or the best players, you know, Starks and Mason, um, Harper, uh, they were Oakley. They responded to hard work and competitive spirit. And, uh, and that's why I'll never forget that, that game that day. Mm. I was sitting courtside. Frank Isola was as well, and a, and a bunch of the beat writers when they still gave us good seats, and and the, and the Hawks are about to go down four straight to the Knicks. And what everybody realizes now was just a masterful stroke of genius, not only by Ernie getting younger players to uh, to overwhelm less athletic teams, but Jeff Van Gundy to exploit those ma- mismatches and find a way to get those players up for that, that playoff series. And that whole arena, 19,763 people are chanting, Jeff Van Gundy, Jeff. And, and I just remember looking at you and it looked like you were going to lose it until you grabbed your diet Coke. <laughs> is that, is that, is that, is that the sequence? Well, it, it, you know, uh, a couple of weeks earlier, that would have been, uh, they would have ended with sucks. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, things, things can turn quickly uh, uh, in sports. That is the truth. I hope you enjoyed our coaching chronicles with some of the best leaders in the game. Here at the Mike Wise show, we always bring you great guests and let them tell their stories for your enjoyment. Thanks to my head coach, producer Bruce Bernstein, for compiling these great coaching stories. Thanks also to super editor Ben Wolfen for seamlessly weaving them all together. And don't forget our other Pure Hoops media shows. Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt, and the Pure Hoops podcast with B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman. And pay no attention to the little child in the background screaming. That's my daughter, Margot. And she doesn't get paid. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.